0: Feels like progress. The Chime credit bill visa credit card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members of FDIC. Out of network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.
1: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine dollars a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon shop these deals at your local kroger today or tap the screen now to download the kroger app to save big today kroger fresh for everyone prices and product availability subject to change restrictions apply see site for details the coaches network bringing the game together
2: hey guys you're now listening to the coaches network podcast a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A-licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to The Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by a very special guest of mine. Today's my guest is Tony Mee. He's Lead Youth Development fitness Coach at Doncaster Rovers. Good morning, Tony. How are you?
3: Yeah, I'm good, thanks. we a, a decent Christmas, all, all, being, uh, all things being equal. Yourself?
2: Yeah, very very well, thanks. Um, you know, it's been really busy, but you know, I'm just glad to get 2020 behind us now. Um, so on that note, you know, happy new year. And I want to get right into the heart of the discussion tone. Um, this podcast, like I said, is very much about the journey of the individual. So I want to know right back to your start, the start of your coaching journey. Where did that begin? Where was the passion for coaching first ignited within you? And, uh, you know, how did that come, come about?
3: I think if I wanted to trace it all the way back to, to sort of wanting to do something along these lines, I'd go right back to school days when um, I, I played all the sports going. I was really involved um, in, in participating, but I had some real good PE teachers at school. Uh, and my first inclination when I was at school was to, to stay on at school and and be all academic and become a PE teacher. Um, and, and, and I kind of did the first part of that in staying on at school. Uh, but the, the other two bits, uh, being academic and then becoming a PE teacher, kind of drifted uh, away a little bit. Um, so I looked at a different way of, uh, of trying to achieve the same thing. Uh, my, uh, my uncle was a physical training instructor in the army. Um, and I thought just completely out of the blue, well, the academic route, I'm, I'm closing off myself. Not that I was thick, I just didn't apply myself properly. Um, so I joined the army. Uh, and although you can't join the army as directly as a physical training instructor, there's a, there's a kind of a sideways route in, into that line of work. And that's what I did. I, I, joined, the, uh, I joined the Royal Corps of Signals in 1979. As a a 16 and a half year old boy. Um, And within 18 months, uh, I was on a course training to become what's known as an assistant physical training instructor in the army. And I guess that that was the start of my coaching journey. And I know that a lot of people will think of physical training instruction as, you know, just their squad is just tell them what to do, shout and swear, and and they'll crack on with it. which is true to a, to a certain extent. I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to find out a little bit more on the theoretical side of why we're we doing that. Uh, you know this is the reason why. Yes, it's to get people fit. but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. So I kind of made that my mission then and I went on various coaching courses for other national governing bodies as well as gaining some uh, qualifications whilst I was doing the job. So I got coaching qualifications in basketball, swimming, volleyball, boxing, um, athletics, lots and lots of other things to, to sort of, to see where, co- where what coaching was, not just coaching football, because at the time, I played football to a reasonable standard, um, but I didn't, I didn't coach anyone. A lot of my coaching came in in other sports and through physical instruction.
1: Hmm.
2: Interesting. You you talked about a range of different experiences there and obviously starting back way, kind of made your mind up in some ways. And I think for a lot of us in, in, in a very similar fashion in that we knew that we weren't really too passionate about the, you know, the box standard education route. Uh, we much wanted to be more involved in the physical aspect or be something, do something that was active. And, you know, I guess ultimately our passion for the game has kind of driven us down this route in some ways. Um, But you talk there about, you know, taking uh, qualifications in different sports um, and the idea of what coaching is. You know, what what, just interested to kind of go into that a little bit more. And What is coaching to you then?
3: I guess it's, I guess it's that sharing of, knowledge of developing yourself to a level where by demonstration, by instruction, by steering, facilitation, if you like, somebody who doesn't have that knowledge. So you're you're trying to bring them up towards your level. Um, It's not all, again, going back to the the Army PTI thing, it's not just do this because I'm telling you it's right. They need to know, in a lot of cases, why that's what you're thinking uh same and uh, same as, as you do as a coach you know if someone makes what you perceive to be as a mistake then what were they thinking that led them to make that mistake and, and and if we can both agree that it was wrong the outcome didn't work out then can we find a different solution between us um rather than me just saying well look do it this way and it'll work every time because it doesn't it doesn't work like that
2: no i totally agree and i think you know something very. Um... Something that you said there that really resonates with me is the idea of working together to come to that solution. You know, a large part of the way I work and the things I try and achieve with my players is, is not necessarily trying to develop independent players or fully dependent players, but no, the, the actual aspect of interdependent. Um, so they're actually competent and able enough to, I guess, go ahead and perform the actions themselves and make decisions themselves and the rest of it. But they're equally socially and psychologically confident enough to basically have those conversations with myself as well. Um, so that we can come together where where they may feel they need support, they can be more self-aware and actually look at how they're going to get to that next stage. But actually realizing in its first instance that actually I do need some support here, and I'm, I am confident enough to go and ask for that support too. Um, so you know that that really resonates with me in, in particular. Just to um, kind of you know to I guess look, at, look a bit more at your journey. Then you currently now sitting at Doncaster Rovers as of development phase coach so you've gone all the, you know you've gone from the army background and done all the different sports coaching qualifications and so what's that period like in between how have you gone from there to now where you are now
3: i think that with with a lot of people you you kind of think you're indestructible you think you'll play forever um so like i said i played at a reasonable standard within the army structure um but as i got older i realized that I had enough experience that I could um, pass that on and that I wasn't going to be able to play forever. So I, uh, I did the, what well, a lot of people will know it as the old half-badge course while I was still serving um, and started to do a bit of assistant coaching at, at the various regiments that, that I was posted to and um, and then again, you know, you know that your career is going to come, your military career is going to come to an end at some point. You start thinking about, well, I'm only going to be 40 when I finish with the army. What am I going to do next? Mm. So then I started to really think about, well, is there a career in football coaching for someone who hasn't been a, a pro, who would, would have been totally unknown on any kind of non-league scene because I'd actually served a lot of my career um, out in Germany. So there's nobody, you know. It wasn't like I played for a local side for ten years or various local sides for ten years, and then went into coaching, like a lot of people seem to do. You know, my experience of non-league football in this country is, is pretty limited, and you know, I, I've always admitted that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know which clubs play at what steps. Um, so I, I don't feel that I need to know that for the for the job that I do now. So eventually, I went on the old. Full badge course, the old um, FA full-badge course. And then in 1998, I had four years left to serve. And then I really started to think about it. Um, that was when the UEFA qualifications were, were brought into this country. And mm-hmm. I think the conversion course that I went on, having passed my full-badge previously, was like the second one that they ran at Lillishaw. um mm-hmm. And it, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because I, here I am, Joe Squaddy came over from, uh, from Germany the, the, on the Friday, I think it was, a flew in, stayed at Lillyshaw, of course, was due to start on the Saturday. Um, for those that know Lillyshaw, uh, we used to meet in the bar before everything started. So I was actually sat in the bar on the Saturday morning and um, Gary Stevens, the ex-Tottenham player, was at the other side of the bar with obviously some lads that he knew from from London. Um, and he came over and introduced himself to me, and I'm like, well, "Hang on a minute, I know you are. You're Gary Stevens, the famous footballer, and and here I am, just Joe Blogs from the army." Um, so we we got up into the lecture room, and I looked around this room, and there were so many what I consider to be famous football faces, um, people like Les Reed, Steve McLaren. Um, Laurie Sanchez, who used to play for Wimbledon, who, who I actually knew because I'd done some preseason work with them out in Germany. Um, a lady called Sue Lopez, who was very influential in, in women's football uh, back in the day. Um, and it was just a room full of famous people in, in famous club gear. And I thought to myself, wow, I've really overstepped the mark here. Um, but within... I guess within, within the first day or so, the people out the front um, who were asking questions weren't really eliciting much response from a lot of the audience. And me being me, I just chirped up. And then I kind of gradually came around to the, to, to, to the thought that, do you know what? Why am I being intimidated? I've got as much knowledge, subject knowledge, um, and in case, in some cases, a lot more because of my background than these people have got. What these people have got is name and reputation and experience in a pro game, but not all football coaching is about what goes on in a pro game. So I kind of settled into it from there, and um, and shortly after that, I was lucky enough to be selected to be um, to become an FA tutor, um, and I did that whilst I was still serving. So. Good because I had a regular, um, a, a regular supply, if you like, of, of coaching courses that I could uh, that I could instruct on, um, and I got involved in non-league football I was based down in the southwest at the time, um, and that was it. From there, I like I say, I had four years left to serve, um, and then eventually, when I came out in 2002 um, with my UA for A license and as an FA coach educator. Uh, I was lucky enough to get a job where in football where I thought, you know what, I could make a second career out
2: of this. I think, you know, you talk about a range of experiences and obviously, you know, that first step of how, you, you know, you've gone through the graph, you've got the qualifications that you need and you're going into that environment where you might have some people who might be more qualified but they're qualified in different ways um, and I think we often you know face that conundrum of right if we're not from a you know x playing background you know are we going to be deemed as competent or are we going to give them the given the same chance but actually what you tend to find in most situations well actually as coaches we're we're probably far more qualified than they are um unfortunately that's not how everyone looks at it Um, you know there's a global has the next pro they play at a certain level so we can kind of just fast track them through the process or we can just rely on their playing experience and they're going to be a, a great coach. Well, it's not always the case. Um, as you talked about earlier, it's about sharing that knowledge. Um, and I think a lot of, for me is, is really about how you go about doing that. And I think you can only really start to be really good at that is if you go out and put the, put the hours out on the grass and get get the work done and understand what it means to actually communicate with players in, in different moments, more specifically, how different people learn. And if you've never really had that experience and, you know, I like guess some of these players... Uh, maybe towards the back end of the careers, they start getting involved a bit in the coaching side. Some tend to maybe, you know, delve a little bit within the younger age groups of the, of the club that they're working with. Um, just start really, you know, dipping their toe in the water. To, so in some ways, you know, now that you've had some of the experience working as a tutor, I want to kind of maybe talk a little bit about the coach education pathway. Um and that experience and you know how the coach education pathway has shifted so much certainly since maybe you took your qualifications and again when i've maybe took mine and then where it is now today um now you know you talked there 1998 is when the conversion course came in for the the ua for what going into ua for eight at the time
3: yeah ua for Yeah. yeah
2: so very much you know correct me if i'm wrong but very much it was probably very focused around the technical aspects um obviously i think just as a sport industry in general, everything's moved forward away from just being very much technical to a much more holistic aspect, um, which I think is fantastic. And I think there's so many benefits of that, but what would your, what would your thoughts be on the idea that in the process of that shift and that gradual change over the years, it's probably gone maybe too far away from the technical side of things.
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, I stopped tutoring about five years ago when I'd gone down to St. George's Park for a tutor event and they started talking about this world-class coaching environment and they start to move away from UEFA A licences being tutors and and, and UEFA B um, coaches coming back in as tutors. And it was an experiment that they'd tried before and moved away from. Um, but the thing that stopped me from tutoring at that time was they um, they asked tutors uh, to commit to twenty eight days per year of of tutoring of, of tutoring courses, which i thought i found a little bit strange one because i was work- i was working full time in football anyway so my twenty eight days um, leave if you like holiday per year to spend with my family to get away from football et etc et etc was was really important to to try and fit in twenty eight days tutoring as well as having a full time job i didn 't think it was particularly Realistic at the time, so I made the decision not to reapply for for a tutor role. Um, then over the last sort of couple of years, and they, they kind of moved towards this more remote learning. Look, I get it all. I understand. I've had, I'm sick of Zoom meetings <laughs> um, over the last sort of nine to ten months. Um, but when I saw that some of the changes that were coming out, um, last year that have now been rolled out with the 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 mentoring scheme disappearing and potentially the level one course moving to an online platform. I just, I mean, you mentioned earlier on about you can't beat feet on the grass. You're right. It's 100%. You can't beat getting grass on the bottom of your boots and mud on your boots. The other thing you can't beat is that interaction that takes place outside of the formal setting, sitting at dinner with different people sitting um sitting in a bar I learned so much at, at Lillishall and St George's Park from sitting in the bar and talking to people like Colin Reed and Ted Dale who who, who I, I would never have met other than through football who worked in, in big London clubs at Colin at West Ham, Ted at Chelsea, um and things like that. That that informal learning, um you you can't substitute that. And I, th- I think that that'll be the biggest miss. You know, I get all the, the in situ visits and and I, I understand how that makes it easier for the, for the coach who's attending the course to deliver sessions with his players in his environment. I, I, I'm not decrying that. I, I just worry about the lack, potential lack of that human interaction. Nobody wants to sit and talk to a screen all day long. Um, the, the, you, you can't you, you can't do that I don't think it's going to work yeah but, but you, I think I,
2: something that you touched on there is obviously that interaction I've, you know, I, I actually tutor myself in the current uh, setup and the way it is well I don't know what it's going to look like going forward now but um, one of the you know one of the things I've always said is that uh, because there is that in-situ process a lot of the learners tend to kind of hide away from actually then delivering on the course and it's almost like oh well I'm not going to be assessed on this so I'm going to be assessed on what's happening in my environment Um yeah. And it, it, they almost shy away from it. So then, what you end up happening happen in some cases is people don't end up delivering because, or they don't get, they don't do it properly, or, they, or rather they'll deliver and they'll make an excuse to say, "Well, this isn't this isn't what I'm being assessed on." So they're not really intentional about their delivery, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Just to kind of you know build on that, then we don't know where the coach education pathway is going to go now. But certainly over the last few years, it has changed massively. In terms of, the, in terms of obviously, those coaches who are now going on to the qualifications or have been going on to the qualifications in recent months or recent years, sorry, what would you what would your advice be to them? Because there's been a lot of discussion around it shifting from a technical perspective and how much of that information um, they're now missing out on. So you talked there about having conversations with the likes of Ted Dale, Colin Reid, and you know coincidentally enough, they were actually two of the tutors when I did my UEFAB a few years back and you know, you're right having those informal conversations with people, whether they be tutors or your, your peers and your, on your course and whatnot is somewhere that, you know, the actual real learning takes place. Cause you just start having conversations, start doing live reflection and, you know, reflection on conversations and thinking, okay, well, I like the way they did that and so on and so forth and trying to reply the information in your own way. What would you, what would your advice be to those coaches who are maybe looking to kind of develop their technical knowledge a little bit more, they don't really necessarily have access to those, those conversations that you, that you refer to. And certainly now, you know, there's, there's, the argument would be that the courses now are, um, are less about maybe what the tutor can offload to you and more just about covering content, so to speak.
3: I, look, I, one of the things that, that I think that people shouldn't be afraid to do is look backwards. Um, so when I first started getting involved in coach education, in, at the back end of the 90s, we were still covering things like placement of your non-kicking foot, which part of your foot strikes the ball to, to, to make this effect. You know, so those kinds of things I found were really, really important. That's, you know, they're the fundamentals of the game, not talking about half spaces and playing through the thirds. And that's, OK, that's, that's not even new stuff. It's just current stuff. But you, so... Along with a guy called Joe Roach, um, who's the academy manager at at Bournemouth, uh, who I worked with um, during my army days, we put together um, a a thing, a, a document called Key Factors. And it broke down everything that people needed to know, but actually that the course didn't allow you the time to teach. So... You know how to how to play a swerve pass, for example. How to play a reverse pass. What to do in two v ones. What to do in individual defending. Two v one defending. Two v two defending. Um, and it's a document that I I regularly tweet out. Um, but I don't think I don't think enough people have that fundamental technical knowledge to improve players. We know how to play the game. We know how to structure formations. Uh, you know but, but that actual the basics so if a, if a player can't pass a ball and can't control a the ball then how is he going to fit into any sort of um, team situation how is he going to fit into any sort of match environment if they can't deal with the ball and and i think that that's missing and it's not going to come back unfortunately
2: totally agree and i think you know just something that you touched on there about Ooh, that information sorry, no sorry um, just something you touched on there about that, you know, that technical information. I think it's very good to have. Um, you, know, you guys call it the key factors and whatnot. And I think one thing that I certainly try and get the message across is that you have to remember that this is a technical. It's a technical space. You're a coach working yeah. in a technical game. It's not about um, yeah. And I, you know, after I threw the question out there the other day, and I've been having this ongoing discussion with people, with people over the last few weeks. Is my opinion. Because of the way things are shifted and we've got this whole four corners thing, which I think is fantastic, but the holistic approach I think it's fantastic. I think a lot of people now are shying away from actually coaching and hiding behind this idea of, well, we're working in the four corners. Well, okay, that's great. But it's not about necessarily isolating the corners, it's about having a blended approach. So at some point you still need to be doing the technical work. Yeah. And, you know, having those key factors that you've referred to is fantastic, and that's great. And I think it's important to highlight that there isn't a one way of doing it. So they're just, but you need to have some sort of key factors as a coach, no matter what you're working on, so that if you have to offload some of that information, not saying that you need to, that you've got something for your players to refer back to. Because I think think you'd agree with me in saying that if players are able to achieve the task and it's not necessarily done in the way that you have, I, I guess, or you would go about it, you'd still be okay with that because actually there's no you know, there's no harm in doing it in a different way because it's still getting a success.
3: However, yeah. If the outcome's achieved, then yeah. who's to say that might be better than, than your method. We might discuss alternative methods, the what ifs, mm. but again, the, the, the danger of, of, of using that too much is that every training session then becomes a discussion between a coach and the players. Um, and actually, nobody's kicking a ball and nobody's running around. So that it's interesting that you mentioned the, that blended approach. That blended approach is absolutely vital. It's it's using the right um, it's using the right intervention at the right time with the right player for the right situation, and that might not always be the same. And and, and something else that that we need to factor in. Uh, when we're coaching over here, is is the weather conditions, you know. It's you know, this our season is freezing cold and ninety percent wet. So do your players really want to be standing around with you having a debate, get them running around and, and and find a different way. Um and it might not be in the book. You might never have been shown it.
2: Mm.
3: You know, we talk about drive-by coaching or butterfly coaching. Call it what you want. But the, the bottom line is You've got to try and help your players improve because that's going to help your team improve. And it's a team game. Unfortunately, where I'm working, I say unfortunately, it's not unfortunate at all. The development of the individual has to take priority over the development of the team. If you're working at at a different level, then the development of the team is probably, you know, sometimes the focus is that way. Develop the team and hopefully you'll bring the players up with you.
2: Mm definitely. And I'm just going to take you back to your own journey a little bit now then. So, you know, you you currently now at Doncaster Rovers, um, lead youth development for his coach. Just for those that don't, aren't too familiar with the role and what it entails, you mind just going into a little bit of detail around that, please?
3: Yeah, so, most most people know that pro clubs um academies are divided into three steps. You've got the foundation phase, which for some clubs is nine to 11. Uh, in our club, it's nine to 12. It's, it's all the teams that are not playing 11 aside, Then you've got the youth development phase, which is 13s to 16s, which is where I, I currently sit. Um, and then you've got the professional development phase, which is the full-time model for the, for the under eight teams. So as the lead foundation phase coach for the youth development phase, I, I, I do coach a team. I know that it, it doesn't always happen in some clubs. You just sit back and, and take an overview, but, um, we have an overview of everything that goes on from thirteen to sixteen. So all of our eleven aside teams would, would come under my umbrella. I need to make sure that we've got the right staff, along with the, the academy management staff, that we've got the right staff coaching the right age groups, that we've got a robust syllabus which covers
1: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app.
3: and it's having that overview to make sure that the coaches are following the syllabus and developing those players in line with the club's curriculum.
2: Brilliant. And you just looking at that aspect, then, you know, you're talking there about, I think, a key part of your role, which is obviously working with those players that transitioning from face to face. What are some of the things that you might need to consider when preparing that player going from the youth development phase into the professional development phase?
3: So I think that one of the things that, again, this needs to be a reality check for a lot of people. Um, They talk about um, how brutal academies are in terms of releasing players and decision-making and all the rest of it. I think that wherever I've worked, we've always made a point of making sure that people understand the process, right from under nine all the way through to under 16, that there's never any guarantees other than... You, know, you either sign for a year or you sign for two years. And at each point, there might be a, a decision to be made about whether a player continues on or, or stops. At under 16, obviously, depending on what level you're working at, you've then got to work with your professional development phase staff to say, right, where are the gaps in our under 18s? You know, if we've already got three really good strikers... Do we need one from the under-16s? Because that has an effect on players' game time. The other thing that people need to, to realise is that, certainly at our level, with a Category 3 club, you have 18 funded places over a two-year period. So it's roughly usually a nine-and-nine nine split. So you've got Nine first years, nine second years. That limits your choices even more. Usually one of those players is going to be a goalkeeper. That limits your choices even more. So we have to make sure that we're doing the best we can for our employer, which is the football club, in terms of getting players through from under 16s to the under 18s who've got the potential to go on and be a first team player. Now, if we don't have an under 23s, which some clubs don't, they've got to be Closer to being able to make an impact around the first team at 18 than at 23. So there's a lot of crystal ball gazing. There's a lot of using your years of experience. There's a lot of what does the club need over what the under 18s might need. So it's a delicate balancing act. Um, and I don't think enough people, I think people think that academy coaches just go, right, we're releasing him, we're releasing him, we're releasing him, he ain't good enough. It, it's never that. It, it It's not that cut and dried. It's, it's a process of looking at what have we got in front? What have we got coming up behind? Because we might have a really talented under 15 who if we promoted an under 16 into a full-time model, actually the guy coming up behind him is showing more potential, is better, you know, for want of a better word. Um, so you've got to be careful that you don't take players just to fill up a quota. Um, so Yeah, it's, I think there's there's so much goes into it that people don't understand um, or, or aren't prepared to, to sort of look at the bigger picture. Because they mm-hmm. see, I Chelsea, for example, I'm used to Chelsea, at one point, maybe last year, the year before, Chelsea had something like 33 players out on loan. And they still got players at the club fulfilling fixtures at under 16, under 18, under 21, under 23. You know, if you're a big club with lots of money, you can afford as many scholars as you like. You still only get 18 funded places. As you go down the pyramid, that situation changes.
2: I think it's a very interesting point there, obviously, obviously looking at the constraints of the, the club that we're in, you know, working with under in terms of their finances and resources. I think it's a very important aspect to consider in terms of, right, when we're now supporting these players and picking the players for the situations, we need to really look at what, are they, what, where are they now and what is the purpose that we're trying to fill here. It's obviously, you talked about Chelsea having a whole bunch of players. And, you know, if we're honest, a lot of their players probably aren't going to make it into their first team, Um so in some ways you can argue well actually it's, it's almost like a business of um let's let's develop players to an extent where we can now make some money out of them which is you know there's it, no right or wrong really you know everyone's got their own model and you know really is how often you can develop players as a group that are going to step into a first team in the premier league especially you working know, at one of the top clubs in the premier league so i think you know it, it is what it is essentially but i just want to take you back to your journey a little bit now um, you know, you've worked in the game many years, worked in many capacities, both as a coach, coach educator. Um, I'm just interested to know what what was what, what is the you know the the journey taught you around the idea of leading others. What is that? What has that taught you about that?
3: I think the one of the one of the biggest things is people have got to be really realistic about how much sacrifice uh, this job uh, needs you to make. There was something on Twitter yesterday about uh, a guy, I think he was at Blackburn Rovers, who's uh, not coach, but on the sports science side, been doing it 15 years, who's now decided to step away from it because he's, he's he wants to prioritise his family. Um, I was thinking about this um, this morning. You know, If you're a young coach who, who wants academy football uh, as a coach, you better get your head screwed on about what that entails because as a as someone who's in charge of a phase for example, and I don't want to paint all young coaches with the same brush if you're in that sort of 21 to 25 age bracket and you like a good Saturday night out, then maybe academy football is not for you because you're not going to get much of a Sunday morning and I don't want you turning up to coach one of my teams on a Sunday morning when you've got in at 3 or 4 o'clock because you've been out with your mates so there's a certain amount of sacrifice that coaches need to make if you think that being a 24 25 26 year old coach particularly in the the cat three academies is going to pay your bills going to pay your mortgage then again have a look at it with wide open eyes because the money's not great the money isn't great for the sacrifice uh, and that's not that's not picking on clubs that's not certainly not picking on, on, on where I work that's the reality of the situation that you're faced with so you've got to know what you're getting into um, and you've then got to be prepared to make those sacrifices and make them for a long time because there aren't that many full-time jobs in football
1: mm,
2: Just on that then do you think there's a, there's a danger that I, I mean it's just my opinion I think the coaches tend to be getting younger now um, do you think there's actually a danger in that actually because they are getting young they're actually less experienced and more inclined to want to take those positions for a, a lesser salary so we say um, but actually are maybe not quite ready to be working in those environments with
3: potential elite players yeah I think that there's I think that there's a way of structuring it um, and I think that you 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 cannot undervalue older experienced coaches who don't rely on their academy salary um, to pay the bills, to pay the mortgage, um, and clubs need to make better use of them as mentors. So if you do get young coaches who who come into the system, you need to make sure that you partner them up appropriately. I wouldn't put two – I'd I'd be reluctant to put two young coaches together. Um, This is one of my arguments years ago when they stopped – allowing um, level two coaches to work in academies. This came about when I was at Rotherham United and I wrote a letter to the FA saying that that I felt it was wrong, that that level two coaches should be allowed to work in academies under the supervision of experienced UA for B licensed coaches because where else are they going to get the experience from? We can't keep sending them back to grassroots to coach you know, under 13s, under 14s, with no mentors, just bunging them in as a as a lead coach. Um, so, I, I, I think that that partnering up, and it's one of the skills of of the job for the academy managers and heads of coaching and, and lead face coaches, is making sure that your pairings are right, um, that people are getting um, appropriate experience under the guidance of somebody who's maybe been there and done it.
2: So I guess you know, in, in kind of to build on that, then you know, what would you say one of the biggest bugbears is for you in terms of coaching? Say that again. Just to kind of build on that. It's one, what would you say is one of your biggest bugbears when it comes to coaching? Then.
3: Oh, wow. Um, I don't. I don't think there's any one particular thing. I mm. think mm. In, in that respect, it would be those coaches that don't come into the, to it with their eyes open. Mm. Uh, and who jump around. So they might, they'll they'll come into a club and they'll start at whatever level. Um, then they want to do, all of a sudden, they want to do the under 18s. They want to be in, in around the 18s. So you going to be coaching five minutes.
2: Yeah, I think, but do you know, do you not feel that a lot of that is down to the salary aspect? Because there's a lot of coaches who understand that you know, there's probably more money or probably more likely to get a full time role at the PDP side of things. Um, but a lot of coaches aren't necessarily suited for that environment. They're probably better suited for maybe the YDP or even the foundation phase. Um, They're not necessarily looking at where they're best placed, but more where they're going to be best paid.
3: Yeah. I think that, I think that's something that clubs need to look at. Um, And I know that we don't, for example, we don't pay based on the age group that you coach. We pay based on your license. So if you're a UEFA B coach and you're working with the under nines, you don't get paid any less than the UA B coach who's working with the under 16s. Mm. Uh, that might not be the same at, at all clubs, but it certainly alleviates that particular problem where you think, well, that the older the boys that I'm working with, the more money I'm gonna get paid. Yeah, if you've got a full-time job, then fine. But actually I know a lot of coaches who have full-time jobs away from football, who then earn good money as part-time academy coaches, are so probably earning more than me.
2: Mm. Mm. It's, it's it's definitely a challenge, you know. So kind of, you know. Speaking of challenges, you know, I just wanted to interest in obviously you've had a range of experiences working football for a long time now. What would is one of the biggest challenges that you've had to go through?
3: I mean, there's there's some personal stuff which which people know about. Those that follow me on on Twitter. Those that finding that balance is really difficult between between your personal life, your private life, your social life, and and a full-time job. and And one of the things when I was at Rotherham years ago, um, i I was through the club, I'd managed to get a full-time job in a in a college. but I was doing Monday to Friday, working in a college I was doing two or three evenings a week working with the academy or center of excellence as it was then um and I was coaching uh, we had games obviously every Sunday with the academy and and I remember the the, the the guy that was in charge of us at the time is the assistant manager of Chef United now Alan Nil. and I went to him and said look I need to step back for a little bit because I had no balance at all and so finding that Finding that work-life balance is really important because you'll neglect things. You'll ne- neglect your own health. You'll neglect your own diet. You know, you're getting in. I was getting in from from my college job at uh, four, five o'clock, grabbing beans on toast because I was going back out to coach at six o'clock, getting home from training then at nine o'clock, uh, you know, jumping in the bath or jumping in the shower. And you, you realise that your diet's gone out the window. You haven't been to the gym for weeks. So, don't don't let football take over your life. Would I guess that'd be it?
2: Hmm. Mm. It certainly is a difficult challenge at times, just to kind of balance that. And I think, you know, just to kind of build on that, then you know, what what's the thing that keeps you going? Why do you you know Why do you keep pushing? Obviously, you've been in the game for a long time now. You know, um, had a range of experiences, gone through the coach education pathway, gone through the you know the coaching route. Still in the industry, it's probably been about what, 30, 40 years now.
3: <laughs> not quite that long, but yeah, I mean I've been I've been coaching in the academy for twenty years, mm. pretty much. Um couple of years tagged on to that, if you like, with with coach education. Um I, I think it's just I like what I do. Mm. You don't you're not doing it for the money and you know you if i hated the job then i wouldn't do it I'd, I'd try and find something else even at my age but i, just, mm. I enjoy i enjoy being around the the first team environment when you know in, in pre covid days and, and and talking to first team managers and first team players i enjoy the academy environment i enjoy being with the guys whether that's um in the office and, and bantering about the little bit of social life that, that we used to have Again, pre-COVID, um, but I, I enjoy working with with young players. I think that if you work with young players, it gives it keeps your personal outlook on things fairly modern and, and up to date. And you know, just treat just treating kids properly mm-hmm. um, I think is really important. And we look, we all make mistakes. We're all going to pop off one night because we've had a bad day or because something's happening that's totally unfootball related but you take it to work with you but you just i think if people know you they recognize for what for what you are Mm. and what you can bring and they can they they might then forgive the odd blip because everybody's going to have them it's you know you're not perfect
2: Definitely. You know, if I could, speaking about that, then, you know, looking, you've had a lot of time to maybe reflect over the last few years in particular. And, you know, as we start to, you know, get towards a more experienced aspect of our journey, we start to maybe think back at some of the moments earlier, early on, and you know, why did we do that? And what, what could we do differently? Not to say that they were regrets, so to speak, but certainly things that you feel like, you know, I, I wish I did that differently. Um, so I guess, you know, if you had an opportunity now to go and speak to yourself when you first got into this industry, um, what would be one message that you'd want to give yourself?
3: Don't spend all your savings. Um, (laughs) I think that I I would have probably told myself to be a little bit more flexible, particularly early on, because I, I was one of those who I I didn't really want to work in a foundation phase. And, and, and it was mainly because I had, I had no real experience of working with young kids. Mm certainly when i was at Rotherham we had we had some coaches who, who worked with those younger age groups who were really really good at it and i and that's why you know i believe that you get paid for what you are not for where you're working and and they didn't they didn't want to jump they didn't want to go and coach the under 16s they were happy um, and good at, at working with those younger kids they had great rapport with them and um, but but it wasn't for me. Now I would maybe say, well, look, it might not be for you, but go and spend a bit more time with them. Mm. We had a change of management at Rotherham United, and I got um, my role was changed, so I became the head of the foundation phase for a year. Mm. Uh, so spending that year with those nines to twelves actually opened my eyes a little bit, and and I remember going and having. Um, I asked Pete Sturgis to to drive across and meet me to discuss it because it was at a time when I was gonna go, you know what, I don't want to do it, I'm out. Um, but I had a, i had a conversation, I met Pete and we had a conversation and, and he persuaded me really to give it a go and to look at things a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that, that probably <clears throat> looking back on it now that probably stopped me from getting out of football. And once you get out there isn't it's not an easy route back in I can I can promise you that.
2: Mm. Uh, yeah, certainly. I, I, you know, I think having that conversation with Pete would put you somebody very passionate about working in the foundation phase. Probably, you know, you probably knew exactly what he had to say to kind of get you around to seeing seeing the positives in it. Um, you know, just kind of, you know, just kind of building that. And obviously, you know, you know, you've gone through that experiences. You know, worked with. You know, currently at Doncaster, working as a lead youth development, youth development phase coach. You had the experience working as a tutor you uh, know, range of experiences across the different qualifications that you've done as well. What would you say is next for Tony me then?
3: I think that you sometimes, um, you might, it's certainly the older you get, the more you, you can be satisfied with your, with your lot in life. I'm, I'm, I'm okay working where I am. I, I don't harbour any great ambitions now um to To move up, if you like, or move to another club, and and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, but you know, it, I think if you're happy with with what you what you're doing, and and probably sounds big-headed, but if you're good at it, and, and you think you're good at it, and people tell you you're good at it, then you don't always need to move. You can just look for ways to improve what you do, how you do it, and and how you give back.
2: Mm, definitely. And I think it you know, is. Sorry.
3: That, I was just gonna say, I'm not saying that if the opportunity to go because I've worked with it under eighteens before, I'm not saying that if, if that opportunity didn't arise, I wouldn't have a look at it because it'd be it could be quite nice to have a day job again instead of one that involves working till half past nine and a couple of couple of nights a week. Um but that's just you know that's just making my own life a little bit easier the football for me the football's not significantly different
2: mm. no definitely i think you know just to kind of you talk talk there about you know opportunities and sharing sharing knowledge in that respect uh, if i gave you 60 seconds now then you know to kind of wrap up you know some golden nuggets for the listeners and viewers to think about in terms of applying them in their own journeys based on all the experience that you've you've had uh you know, one of the key things you just touched on a couple of moments ago is obviously, you know, once you leave the game, getting back in it can be a real challenge. Um, so kind of just to build on that, and what are some of the other nuggets you could kind of lend to the listeners
3: well, here? Th- I said to someone before, um, somebody else on a, on a different, about lending yourself to the game. You know, we don't own the game. We don't, I've never, I, I can honestly say I've never seen, uh, I don't think I've ever seen a session that someone shared that I haven't seen before um, I was looking at a book yesterday um, that Rennie Muhlenstein's has just brought out and one of the first practical sessions that's in there is you know is one that he did with Man United at the peak of their success it's probably one that I've been doing for 15 years it's football nothing's new now
1: mm.
3: there's a post at that end goal at that end there's a goal at that end how you get from one to the other it's down to you and your club. So if, if you're in a position to shape a philosophy, it's down to you. What you've got to do then is get coaches and players that buy into your philosophy. Now, if you're, if you're so set in your ways, even early on as a coach, we can only play this way, then be very, very careful about how you present yourself when you go for a job. Because if your club doesn't play that way, if I go for a job, um, I say, I'm, I've got a real clear example <laughs> in mind, but I'm not going to say it. And, um, if I go, if, if my philosophy is playing out from the back through the thirds, you go for a job at a club who play long ball football because their first team are all about getting results. Be very, very careful about how you present yourself at interview because they're not going to change their ways to suit you. Sometimes you're going to have to part your beliefs, you're going to have to part your philosophy if you want a job in football. Mm. Might be able to then influence from within. But you need to be very careful about how you do it and how you say it. Because if you present yourself wrong, you'll find yourself out of a job quicker than you got mm-hmm. into one.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And just lend the game. As I say, as a coach, the game's been around for hundreds of years and it'll be around for hundreds of years more. So while you're in it, what can you do for other people? Can you share content? Uh, people don't have to use it. And and you shouldn't be embarrassed to put it out there. You will get people who who, who want to troll you on on social media if, if you do it that way. So what? Mm. Just, just rise above it. You know, just block, delete, do whatever you need to do. But you'll get a lot of good coaches who'll come back and give you feedback if you ask for it. A lot 100%. of people. Share feedback.
2: Hundred percent. This kind of just kind of you know, it's kind of building that. And obviously. You, 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 You've really started to build a picture for me around the type of character you are, and you know I just want to kind of build on that. And you know, when you do eventually kind of, um, and I'm sure you've been through different environments over the years, but when you do leave a situation, what's the kind of legacy that you want to leave behind? So you know you've, you've worked at different clubs, you've worked at different capacities. You know anyone that you comes in contact with, what's the what's the lasting memory you want them to have of you?
1: If they as it's
3: if if you. Walk away, and it goes back to that all black thing. If you leave the shirt in a better place, you know. If you leave the club in a better place than you found it, and people can say, "Yeah, he was all right." I don't mind that. Mm. You don't have to have been brilliant, but up, certainly up here. And mm. when because I'm quite a, I can be, come across as quite a quite a dour person. And but but I'm, I've I've always thought that that I'm honest. Mm. So if, if people say he's done all right, I'll take that.
2: Excellent. And just Tony, just on that, you know, final note. Obviously, you know, I've I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today, and I think there's you know, some real golden nuggets for the listeners to kind of latch onto and just start to consider within their own journey. Certainly, if you know, if there was anyone that had any questions, kind of, a weave around the conversation that we've had, or even beyond, I wanted to, you know, get in touch with you. There's somewhere they can do that.
3: Yeah. Uh, so I'm on. I'm on social media far too much. Um, but that's okay. I can live with that. That's is that that the
2: work-life balance coming back into it. Is
3: it? Well, it <laughs> it's kind of my link to the outside world um, because my situation means I don't get out and about as much. I don't mm. get on much anymore to meet people. Um, but certainly on Twitter at Coach Tony Me, uh, on Facebook, uh, there's a few coaching groups on Facebook. Uh, Coach to Share is one that I help to 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 sort of moderate. Uh, and even a couple of the, the, the non-UK ones, soccer coaches in the US,
1: mm-hmm.
3: Canadian soccer coaches is another one, and grassroots coaching. Again, if anybody asks me anything on social media, I generally get back to them. If, if it's people asking me for trials and asking me to help them find a club, you're wasting your time. I don't have that much influence. I will, I mean, I, I still do, help out a lot of my ex-players a lot of my ex-players i'm really pleased to say will still come back to me and and ask for references and and things like that and i'm more than happy to help anybody who wants to try and help themselves
2: excellent i just want to thank you again for your time today and i'm sure you know there'll be plenty of people that get in touch you off the back of this Well, there you have it guys another episode of the coaches network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete talent and personal development together to just one platform And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Network. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.
0: You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.
1: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app.